This next point is Hebrews 13:12 because since Boaz purchased Ruth to be his wife you got to look at Hebrews 13:12 to see where Jesus Christ was crucified and I go well he was crucified on Calvary true on Golgotha's hill absolutely but Hebrews 13:12 goes kind of into a specific on this. It says, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Now you understand that these cities, Jerusalem had a gate. It was a walled city. It actually had a gate. And so it says that the Lord was crucified Without the gate. What's that mean? It just means he was crucified outside the gate of Jerusalem. Now, if you go back to Ruth, chapter 4, verse 11, even Proverbs 31, 23. When Boaz purchased Ruth, did he go inside the gates of Bethlehem? Yes. No. Look at Ruth. Go back to Ruth 4.11. Go back to Ruth. Let's look at it. Some of you are saying yes. Some of you are saying no. Ruth what? 4.11. Boaz went to Bethlehem. He's going to purchase Ruth. He's going to do all the law stuff. And in Ruth 4.11, all the people that were in the gate and the elders said we are witnesses and then it goes on to explain that the Lord make the woman that is coming to the house like Rachel and Leah the people were inside the gates of the city Boaz wasn't because when you look at this verse you find out that the people were there, they were inside, Boaz purchased her at the gate, not inside the city. And when you compare that to Hebrews chapter 4, or chapter, what was it, 13 and verse 12, Jesus Christ was not inside the gates of Jerusalem, or I mean of yeah, Jerusalem. He was crucified without the gate. In Old Testament times, the town gate was an open space where people would gather. It was kind of a, a space where people would gather. They would talk. The elders met there. They would judge civil cases. They would judge criminal cases. Business transactions were completed there. It was just kind of a place, an open place where stuff could happen before witnesses. Now, written records were kept. They kept records of what was going on. Uh, there was great dependence on eyewitnesses. People watching what was going on that could attest to any agreement that was made between two people. So Boaz approaching the other kinsmen at the gate 
and holding a discussion with his other kinsmen that could redeem Ruth but wouldn't do it. This was in the open and it was calling on all the bystanders inside the gate his right to serve as Ruth's kinsman redeemer. It was, it was a Jewish tradition. It was a Jewish happening. It was just the way the law worked then for, for Boaz to purchase Ruth. Are we okay on that? Yes? Yes. Okay. So how important then is it that Jesus purchased us outside the gate of Jerusalem? I mean, the Bible is so perfect that Boaz was outside the gate in this area of um, purchase that he was going to perform. And so was Jesus outside the gates of the city of Jerusalem when he was crucified. Coincidence? No. It is perfect Bible pointing and saying, you can look at Ruth and you can see how it corresponds with what Jesus did for his church. In Proverbs 31.23 it says, her husband is known in the gates, in the gates, when he setteth among the elders of the land. You get it? See what's going on? Why is he known in the gate? Because the people were what? Witnesses. We know this man and we can testify who he is and we are witnesses to what's happening. Now, how can you and I then be partakers of what happened outside the gates? Ruth was purchased. Boaz took care of it all. He says, I'm going to buy her. She's going to be my wife. Under Jewish law, there's another kinsman who is able but is not willing. So I am going to take care of this. And he did it. Jesus said, because you can't keep the law, I will redeem you. And he did outside the gates of, the, of Jerusalem. Who helped him? Nobody. Who helped Boaz? Nobody. He did it because he could. Jesus did it because he could. Jesus did it because he loves us. Boaz did it because he loved Ruth. So the only way to be a partaker of what our Savior did outside the gates of Jerusalem on Calvary's hill is to step through the gate. Is it coincidence then in John 10, 9, what Jesus said about himself? This is just, I, I'm amazed at this Bible because in John chapter 10 and verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. Verse 2, he that entereth in by the door of the shepherd of the sheep. By me, if any man shall enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find 
other pasture. What do you have to do to receive Christ? You have to step through the gate. Is Jesus the door? Yes. Yes. Is he the gate to our salvation? Yes. Yes. In fact, that word door, check it out. You will find it used other places in your Bible as gate. He is the door. He is the gate. So what do we have to do? We have to step through the gate. We have to stand openly before God as sinners in need of a Savior. Leave everything else behind and bear his reproach according to Hebrews 13.13. So what did Ruth have to do? She had to wait. She waited on Boaz to redeem her outside the city and then receive what he had done, according to 1 Corinthians 6.20, we're not our own, we're bought with a price. Well, then if we're not our own and we're bought with a price outside the gates, where is our freedom to be a virtuous woman? John 8.36 If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed where is our freedom then to be a virtuous woman it's in Christ we are not our own we're bought with a a price 1 Corinthians 6 20 and our freedom to be this virtuous woman lies in Christ so unless we yield to his lordship as born again believers We're seeking our liberation as women, as people in vain. You know, women especially. Liberation movement, right? I want to be free. I want to be equal with a man. I I want this job. I want the same amount of pay. I want this, I want this, I want this. Well, guess what? We've been liberated as women. And we are free. Proverbs 31.29 says, Many daughters have done virtuously, but thou excellest them all. So, if our freedom then to be a virtuous woman is in Christ, how do we have any hope of excelling as it is outlined in Proverbs 31, 29. Thou excellest them all, is what it says. How do we have any hope of that? Our only hope as women should be Christian women committed to the word of God, ministering to our husbands, wives and moms who are teaching our children and protecting our homes. And unless we abide in Christ, what can we do? Nothing. John 15, 5. So what do you think would be an important question to a potential excelling virtuous woman? What would be the question? Do you love Jesus? Do you know him as Savior? Are you willing to accept the gift of salvation offered through Jesus Christ? Are you willing to commit your life to a spiritual battle that is real? Or are you just going to be involved 
in service to justify the name by which you are called Christian. What's it going to be? Well, if we choose to be on the front lines of a spiritual battle that is real, ladies, it's going to mean we're going to have to get tough spiritually. And quite frankly, you live long enough, you will have some spiritual calluses on those hands you lift up in praise. When there comes times in your life when nothing works, nothing works with your marriage, nothing works with your job, nothing works with your children, nothing works with your ministry, nothing works, then what are you going to do? And it will happen because we are involved in a spiritual war. It will happen, guaranteed. So yieldedness to him is freedom to excel as a virtuous woman. Proverbs 31, 29. Do you get this, kind of get this now? This is not June Cleaver. Remember the, the PowerPoint I put up? This isn't June Cleaver. This isn't the woman just doing everything perfect. This isn't the woman who just serves tea in china cups. This isn't just the woman whose children never get dirty. <laughs> yeah, dream on. Uh, this isn't just the woman who is just perfect. This is the woman who is a sinner saved by grace. And because of that, she has virtue. It's not what we do. It's who we are in Christ. All right. Let me see. The requirement. What was required of Ruth in order for her to follow Naomi to Bethlehem? What did she have to do? If you go back to Ruth 2.11, um, we're talking about the requirement for her being purchased by Boaz. What was the requirement? Ruth 2.11, Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that, you may be a, that, you, that may be your husbands? What was the requirement? She was going to have to leave it all. And Boaz recognized that Ruth had left everything to follow Naomi to Bethlehem. She had left her family. She had left her land of birth. She had left her idol worship. She had turned and totally abandoned Moab. I found this and I thought, you know, this is us. <laughs> God says, I want you to follow me. And you go, well, what do I have to give up? And you know what God says we have to give up? Everything. Everything. If you look at Mark 10, 29 through 30, people today are so afraid if they receive Christ, they're going to have to give up something. They're totally right. They have to give it all up because God says you have to forsake everything to follow him. And you go, hmm, that sounds like 
kind of rough here. Well, let's look at it. In Mark 10, 29 through 30, let's read it. Mark 10, 29 through 30. Jesus um, answered and said, well, Peter, let's start with verse 28. I'm sorry. Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that have left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life what's he saying peter's saying we gave it all up lord and god's saying what you gave up is nothing compared to what i have for you see what jesus has behind his back look at the size of the teddy bear see what she's got he says what i have for you cannot be compared to what you have right now. And some people are not willing to do that. In order even to receive Christ as Savior. Oh, I just can't receive Jesus because I'll have to give it all up. Yeah, all your sin, <laughs> you know, all your bad stuff that's killing you, all of this stuff that is robbing you of joy in life. Yeah, you'll have to give all that bad stuff up. That's too bad. I'm sorry. You know. Why are they so unwilling? Remember in Luke 18, verses 18 through 23, there was a rich young ruler. Remember him? And he says, Lord, what can I do to have eternal life? Remember what Jesus said? He said, get rid of it all. Whatever is standing between you and me, get rid of it. And that was his wealth. He was a very rich young man. Well, Christ was quick to remind his disciples that whatever we're willing to forsake, we're going to receive more. Manifold blessings. Remember the story, the rich young man went away sorrowing because he had great wealth. To some, this world is really enticing and it's pleasurable. And the Bible says in Hebrews 11.25, there's pleasure in sin for a season. But seasons end. And new seasons begin. So if you're living in pleasure and in immorality, you know what we're doing. We're just making ourselves fat for the slaughter, according to James 5.5. 5. God's done everything to provide for our salvation. The question is, are we willing to accept it? Not hard. The result, what's the result? The result was between Ruth and Boaz. What was the result? A relationship and marriage, right? That was the result. What was the title Boaz gave Ruth? Because she trusted him and obeyed Naomi. What do you call her? Virtuous woman, Ruth 3.11. 
And what was the result of her trusting in his grace? If you read Ruth 4, verses 1 through 10, and if you read Ruth chapter 2, she found grace in his eyes. And she trusted that grace, and because of her trust in his grace, that was her redemption. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. That was what happened to her. So what's the result of a person who has trusted in the saving grace of Christ? What's the result? Come on, you guys. What's the result? Marriage. <laughs> Revelation 5.9 One of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us in our sins in his own blood. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 20? Haven't we looked at that before? During this section, what does it say? Okay, somebody read it. You got it? 1 Corinthians 6.20. We are bought with a price. The Bible says they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book. And to open the seals, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Titus chapter 3. These are important verses. Titus chapter 3. And sometimes we skip over them and go, oh, I know that. Well, let's look at it. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The result is a marriage relationship. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready and to her was granted she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. That's your wedding gown. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Get it. I'm sure you do. And then the relationship. What's the relationship? The heart of her husband, according to Proverbs, chapter 31, verses 11 and 12. The heart of her husband does safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of our life. Who's the husband of the virtuous woman then as it relates to the bride of Christ? It's Jesus. Revelation chapter 21, and there came in verse 9, and it came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials 
full of the seven last plagues and talked to him saying, come hither, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. It's talking about the new Jerusalem. Is it also talking about us? Yes, it's us. Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 5. We have a husband. Isaiah chapter 54. For thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. We're just waiting on our um, bridegroom to come. And when he comes, we're going to meet face to face the one who purchased us with his blood and made us a part of his church, called us the virtuous woman and said, I am your husband. And if you look at Ruth chapter 4 and you read it again, you will find out that is the relationship Boaz has with Ruth. So what is God confident we're not going to do as long as we live? I, this amazes me, you guys, because when you read Proverbs 31, it says in Proverbs, I, I want to read it exactly. In Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 10, it says, who can find this woman? But in verse 11, the heart of her husband doth safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. Who's the husband of the church? Jesus. Is she the virtuous woman? Yes. Are we that woman? Yes. Then what's God trusting you and me for? That he will never, ever have to look for another woman. That he will never have need of spoil that we're never going to do anything to prostitute the organic relationship we have with him. You know what he's trusting us? He's trusting us that we're going to love him with our whole hearts till we die or until Jesus comes. He's trusting us that we are going to abide and bear fruit and glorify God. He is trusting us that when the hard times come, instead of lifting, lifting up a fist and blaming God, we will lift up our hands, open palms up and say, Lord, I don't understand one bit of it. Not a bit. But I trust you. This is our Redeemer. This is our husband. This is our maker. This is the one who trusts his church that he will never have need of spoil, that we will never reproach him all the days of our life. So what is it that pleases God? What is it? We're created for his pleasure. Revelation 4.11, right? All right, so if we're created for his pleasure, what is he confident we're going to do? Abide. Abide, because what can we do without him? Nothing. Number two, what is he confident we will do? In Colossians 1.10, we will walk worthy of the calling whereby we were called and we will be fruitful in every good work. And what's the third thing? It's in Colossians 1.10, we will increase 
in the knowledge of God. Pleasing the Father is an act of the will to yield to the Lordship of Christ. It's something you decide you're going to do. And then let the word of God have preeminence in your life. Everything revolves around Christ who has reconciled us to God and the end result is fruit. Now, what's required if those three things are going to be a reality in your life? Did you guys read Proverbs 9.10, John 15.2? All right, what three things? Well, actually, yeah, there's actually four. <laughs> but let's take the first three. What are they? Knowledge, Knowledge wisdom, wisdom, and understanding. And understanding. Yes. <clears throat> Knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Do you understand that when we study our Bibles, it is a trinity of learning? And you go, oh. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> we have a triune God, don't we? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So when you open your Bibles and God says, here's what you need. You need knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And you go, okay, how do I get knowledge? It's right there in Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge the knowledge of the and knowledge <laughs> time out the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the holy is understanding all right how do you get the knowledge of god yes from the word of god do you get it like this mm, okay lord <laughs> here i am you know I think that's called osmosis or something. You know, you put your hand on the Bible and pray to God you get something. You have to open it. You have to read it. You have to meditate in it. You have to delight. You have to, you have to study to show yourself approved unto God. And God says this fear of the Lord, that's the beginning. And you go, well, what's the beginning? Of the fear of the Lord. It's, it's in Proverbs. Uh, I don't think I have it up there. But it's in Proverbs. Uh, one moment. I've got to find it. Um, it's in Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13. It says in Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord. Now get this. Is to hate evil. You go, oh, I thought it was to be afraid of him because he's such an awesome holy God. Listen, the Bible says he is, what is the word? It speaks about the terror of the Lord. Fear of God. And the fear of God. Does that mean I'm supposed to be afraid of him because he's so holy? No. No. But I guarantee you, if it'll put you on your face. But it's not because you're afraid. It's because of who he is and his holiness. So if the fear of the Lord then 
is the beginning of wisdom. What is the fear of God according to Proverbs 8.13? It's just hating evil. Pride, arrogance, the evil way, the forward mouth. Do I hate? So if you go, I fear God, then what are you saying? You hate sin. According to Proverbs 8.13. So if you hate sin, what's that the beginning of? That's the beginning of wisdom. And if you want knowledge, you open the book and you read it, you're going to get understanding. A lot of people have the knowledge of God. They do not have the understanding. A lot of people can spout off scripture and they do not have the understanding. What's wrong? Do you know a lost man can read the Bible and memorize scripture and still not have understanding? Well, look at it. Let's take wisdom next. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, now get this, the power of God and the Is wisdom a thing? No. Wisdom is a person. It says it right there. Jesus, no, where does it say? Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Somebody look up um, Luke 11.49. I've got it right here. Luke 11.49. And I'll go for 1 Corinthians one twenty four. You need to see this. 1 Corinthians one twenty four. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. What does Luke 11.49 say? Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them that shall slay and persecute. Then the wisdom of God, what? Said. Wisdom is speaking. Get the context. Who's talking? Jesus is. Wisdom is not a thing. Wisdom is a person. And when you go to the book of James, it says in James 1, I have 115, is that right? No, it should be 15, you guys. I'm sorry. This should be James 1, 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. When you're asking for the wisdom of God, what are you asking for? I used to ask for it because the Bible said to, God, give me wisdom, and then I would wait. Oh, boy. Now, do I have it? You know? <laughs> Am I wise? How do you get the wisdom of God? One way. It is Jesus. It's right there in black and white in 1 Corinthians one twenty four. So if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. What you're asking for is the mind of Christ. Do we have the mind of Christ? You hold it in your hand. It's called the word of God. This is his mind. So will you have wisdom outside the word of God? Absolutely not. Understanding. 
which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. How do you understand your Bible? You understand it because the Holy Spirit teaches you and me. And it says, uh, first... Um, 1 John 2.27, 1 John 2.27, this is about the Holy Spirit teaching us, somebody, oh there it is, I couldn't find 1 John, uh, 1 John 2.27, but the anointing which is which ye have received of him abideth in you, and you needeth not any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Who teaches you the Bible? The Holy Spirit of God. How do you understand it? Why is it some people understand it and some people don't? Why is it you go, man, I've read that verse a thousand times. And on the thousand and first time, I got it. You ever done that? You know, you read your Bible and you go, when did God put that in there? You know? It's because the Holy Spirit, when you're ready, will give you understanding. Your Bible is a trinity of learning. It is knowledge. It is wisdom. It is understanding. It is God the Father. God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God is the beginning. Jesus is wisdom. Understanding is the Holy Spirit. So you will never learn anything outside of that trinity. So you see what God has done when you received him as Savior. He's created this organic relationship. Do you know the difference between organic and inorganic? What's organic? Living, that's all. Organic is living. We are organic beings. <laughs> We're alive. Inorganic is something that is not living. But what Jesus did, he created an organic relationship with his virtuous woman. Ladies, if you will think on this, just think on it for a while. It'll come to you how intimate the relationship is that God wants with us. We are clean through the word. The Trinity of God. There are three things required for life. One is air. <clears throat> you don't breathe, you don't live, right? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, you know what God did? He breathed into Adam the breath of life. You have to have light. Nothing can live without light. People can't live without light. We need the sunlight. Plants need the sunlight. You have to have light. Anything that is organic needs light. John 1, 7 through 8, 1 John 1, 5. God, the Son, is 
light. And this is something you need, we need to get in our heads. He doesn't just give light. He is light. Exactly. And you go, I'm not sure I can wrap my head around that. Well, join the club. He is the personification of light. That is why in heaven, remember when you read about what heaven is like, there's no sun and there's no moon. You know why? Because Jesus is the light. And then the water. Everything has to have water to live. In John 4.14 and John 7.38, the Holy Spirit is called the living water. So when you consider an organic relationship, the Trinity of God has provided three things for life. God the Father has provided air. God the Son gave us light. And the Holy Spirit is the water we need to survive. Now, what about us? Man is also Trinity. We are a trinity, a being who is made up of three parts. You have a soul, you have a body, and you have a spirit, right? Right? Yes. yes. If you don't, you're not here. <laughs> okay. Now, the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Genesis 2-7. Then the body. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you. That should be you. And you have a God and you're not your own. God made you a body. Made me a body. And if you've received Jesus Christ, it is the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And then we have a spirit. You are bought with a price. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Man is a trinity being. Do you see what God has done? He took who he is, the air, the light, and the water. <coughs> and he united himself with man through the blood of Christ, body, soul, and spirit. When Jesus died, and what has God done? He has united himself with us to form a living relationship between God and man. And because of that, in Proverbs 31.11, this relationship is the heart of God that trusts us that we will do him good and not evil. So, if we're abiding in Christ, if we're bearing fruit, if we're increasing in the knowledge of God, as the bride of Christ, what are we offering the Lord? We are offering him what will glorify him, according to John 15, 8. But if we offer him spoil, do you see what we are doing? We are betraying 
this organic relationship we have with Jesus. Just as a woman can betray the relationship she has with her husband because of unfaithfulness, the bride of Christ can bring shame to God by disobedience to his word. That's something to think on. We can prostitute our relationship with Christ by not obeying his word. Well, Ruth left everything. What was her reward? When she got to Bethlehem, remember she left her family, she left her home, and to go with Naomi and seek bread in a land of praise. And as a result, Boaz said she would receive a full reward. Right? Ruth 2.12? Right? Are you with me? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ says, is very clear, we cannot outserve him, we cannot outsacrifice him, we cannot outgive God. Right? Absolutely. So because Ruth left everything to follow Naomi to Judah, Boaz told her she would receive a full reward. What did she get? I'll tell you what she got. She got Boaz. <laughs> and because she got Boaz, she got it all. God has done everything necessary to reconcile us to himself. Everything. Ladies, the tomb is empty. Jesus died. He was buried. And he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Matthew 28, 6. The angel said, he's not here. For he is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. He's not there. And when we accept the purchase of blood and receive Christ as Savior, we are rewarded. And oftentimes there is a misconception of what the reward is. We think our salvation is a reward. <coughs> I thought that for a long time. I thought, man, I received Jesus as my Savior. I get the reward of salvation. No, salvation is a gift. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's not a reward for you receiving Christ. It is a gift from God. It's free, no strings attached. The reward of our salvation doesn't, has nothing to do with what we have done. Absolutely nothing. It's a result of grace. Not by works of righteousness, remember Titus 3.5, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So what's the reward? Well, the price has been paid. The tomb is empty. We just need to accept what Jesus has done on the cross. 
and were called a virtuous woman for one reason only. Jesus won. That's why we are virtuous women. Not June Cleavers. Not trying to do the best we can to get by. Because Jesus won at the cross. We are virtuous women. If you have received him as your personal savior. So if anyone ever asks you, are you a virtuous woman? <laughs> Most women will go, oh my gosh, I sure hope so. <laughs> oh, I'm just trying the best I can do to, to do Proverbs 31 and to be that woman. Wrong answer. Are you a virtuous woman? Yes. Beverly? Yes. Why? That's the answer. That's the answer. Because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I am a war-worthy woman. And for no other reason. So, next week, we're going to go on to the next section. Yes, we actually finished a section on price. <laughs> so, next week, we're going to go on to um, service. Because this woman in Proverbs 31 she does serve. And if you will read Proverbs 31, you will find out what she does when she serves. And it's not always tea and china cups. <laughs>